It's Friday, May 7th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Tough Questions. This week, we explore the Facebook Oversight Board's decision on Trump's ban from the platform and how disinformation has become a key component of the Republican Party. Our Suzanne Nossel walks us through the biggest free speech stories this week. Then, a professor fired for blowing the whistle, a story of retaliation, the silencing of academic freedom, and attempts to stifle free expression at a university in Oregon. That professor joins us to discuss his firing and why it happened. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. For more on the week gone by, we turn now to our CEO, Suzanne Nossel, for our weekly segment, Tough Questions, where we wade through some of the trickiest questions about free speech in the news this past week. And Suzanne joins me now. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, Stephen. So, Suzanne, uh, the Oversight Board, uh, which rules on content decisions made by Facebook and Instagram, this week decided uh, somewhat a mixed decision on Donald Trump's account and him being banned from the platform in January, saying that they supported the decision in the moment, but perhaps the penalty of an indefinite suspension didn't make sense. I should say you're actually a member of the Oversight Board. You did not take part in this decision because you're new. Um, But I want to know what you make of the ruling. You know, I think it's interesting. I mean, my sense is um, nobody's maybe entirely satisfied, but what the board's decision has done, from what I can tell, is at least allowed for a much more informed, reasoned debate debate over whether the disposition is right or wrong. I mean, they've been they've gone through the paces of the argument to explain why under Facebook's policies this decision was rendered uh, to judge whether Facebook appropriately applied its own community standards as well as its values. They've evaluated the decision uh, against international human rights law and the standards that exist for when an infringement on free speech is tenable, cognizable. They say that the decision matches those criteria, that the rules that Facebook had laid out were sufficiently clear, uh, that they were appropriately applied, that the remedy uh, taking Trump off Facebook was narrowly tailored, uh, at least the the short-term decision to take him off. And so, you know, I think that is a step forward, simply having an elaborated, fleshed-out analysis of why this decision passes muster, not just in terms of the rules that Facebook sets for itself, but from an international human rights law perspective. And so, you know, what that allows for is significantly more predictability on the part of speakers who are on Facebook to have a better sense of whether their particular speech is going to may traverse the rules of the platform, may result in suspension. It allows citizens to better understand why uh, the president was pushed off of Facebook. And so, you know, to the extent that a big part of our concern in these debates, uh, you know, speaking on behalf of Penn, has been just a lack of transparency, a lack of reasoned argumentation, a lack of clear application of transparent rules. I think a decision like this is a step forward. You know, of course, the board also points to you know a whole raft of problems and gaps in Facebook's own 
articulation of how they approach these content questions. And, you know, they've sort of remanded it, uh, would be the legal term you'd use, essentially sent it back to Facebook to say, you know, if you want this suspension to be permanent, then within the next six months, you have to explain why that decision is consistent with articulated rules and what those rules are. And so I think one of the elements for me that the decision really spotlights is the board's demand for Facebook to be far more rigorous and transparent in both the rules that it sets down and in setting forth how they're being applied in an individual instance so that people can evaluate that. And the board, you know, I think rightly declined to kind of step into that role and, and uh, you know, do Facebook's work for it and come up with a rationale for a permanent suspension. I, I think the board rightly sees its own role as reviewing decisions made by Facebook. And in this case, uh, you know, they, they've asked for that decision to be uh, set out separately from the initial determination of, uh, you know, the decision to kick Trump off in the wake of the January 6th. They've sort of said making this permanent is a different matter. That was justified, but making this a permanent suspension is a different matter. And so, uh, you know, it's conceivable that the decision comes back to the board in some guys. And, you know, I, I think this is going to be a work in progress uh, and, and that the feedback that the board gets from civil society and the public is going to hopefully sharpen its approach and its decision making and that the board's critiques uh, and decisions will force Facebook to themselves, uh, you know, put go through a more arduous process of, of rendering these decisions and putting uh, their own analysis and conclusions uh, out for public evaluation. Suzanne, and I should just add, obviously, you, um, in terms of the analysis that we've published on Penn.org, you are stepping back from taking part in that since you are a member of the board, even though you weren't part of this decision. But, but just as a follow-up, one of the things that really struck me in the decision uh, was that Facebook had asked for policy guidance on what to do about political leaders. And, and it was interesting because in the opinion, they said, well, you know what, it's, it's not just political leaders that we should be worried about because there are people on Facebook who have giant audiences who can be very influential, and maybe there aren't by definition political leaders, maybe less about the opinion and just more about this idea of, you know, the Trump decision, while important maybe for us in the U.S., those kinds of things about how other voices, non-governmental voices, influential voices around the world, how that might influence the world, how that could be dangerous uh, for human rights globally. I mean, I found that to be an interesting nuance in, in the decision today. Yeah, look, they, they make a couple points. I mean, one is that, uh, yes, political leaders can have, uh, you know, an overweening influence. And, you know, when they say something, it can be more likely that it's going to come to pass. People may believe if they advocate for something that's unlawful, that they, you know, are in a sense above the law, that they can legitimize what would otherwise be illegal activity. So they point that out, but they also say that, you know, in some respects, it's not just your status as a political leader that renders you uh, uniquely influential. It can be, you know, the size of your audience uh, or your status uh, as reflected in other ways. And that Facebook needs to look at all of those dimensions to consider, you know, what the import is of an individual's speech on the platform. And so it's not necessarily always a, a bright line distinction. Of course, we, have, we know we have religious leaders who have tremendous 
sway over people. We have celebrities who, uh, you know, can uh, have great weight uh, over what their fans and supporters may think and do. And so trying to take into account, you know, when a user of Facebook is more than just uh, an individual and sort of carries an authoritativeness and an influence that, uh, you know, goes, goes above and beyond. And what the ramifications are for that when you evaluate uh, their speech and whether speech is something that they say might be perfectly permissible coming out of the mouth of an ordinary person, but takes on a different meaning, uh, you know, given given who is articulating it. So, Suzanne, I mean, speaking of, of undue influence or additional influence when someone doesn't hold a political position anymore, it's interesting that all of this is happening during a week when President Trump continues to exert serious influence over the politics of the United States. To wit, this week, it seems, as, as we're recording this now, that um, Liz Cheney, uh, who holds a leadership position and is a Republican in the House of Representatives, um, might lose her leadership position over the fact that she um, rebuffed President Trump over his lies about the 2020 election. And it appears, as we record this now, that the party is falling into line. What do you think that says about not only Trump's influence, but the influence of disinformation over our day-to-day politics. Yeah, look, I mean, as Pen America, we don't take a position on who parties should choose to lead them or on who should be elected to political office. But we definitely have a stake in the question of what role lies and disinformation have in inflecting our political discourse. And I find it frankly alarming that we're now, uh, you know, nearly five months out from the election, uh, or or sorry, from the inauguration, uh, rather, and and more than six months out from the election. And we still have, you know, not just a false notion about how the election came out and whether the votes were accurately cast and counted, but an orthodoxy that seems to be gaining strength. And we have a political leader becoming a pariah because she dares call it out and speak the truth, even when there are other members of her party and supporters of the party who, you know, pointed out repeatedly and forcefully that that is what she's doing. She's simply calling it like it is. And, you know, that has become an expulsion-worthy offense, it seems. And so I think you know, any notion that sort of disinformation and its threat was going to dissipate post-election has, you know, really uh, been disproven by where things stand now. And, you know, I think that the Republican Party, you know, really has to ask itself the question whether, it, you know, leadership in those ranks, you know, is premised on fealty to you know, what I think any reasoned person recognizes is just a, a false uh, and fraudulent notion. And, you know, I don't know that we've ever had in our history, you know, a mainstream party that has been bought into, uh, you know, a, a propagandistic um, lie at this level. And so, you know, I think it's a really big deal and really frightening what's going on. I think the question of how people like Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, others who see this for what it is, how they react, you know, what role they take on, how many of them there are, what direction they move is going to be, 
really critical here. I don't believe the American people ultimately are, you know, in this to be fooled. I don't think they're going to, in the long run, reward a party, uh, you know, that who has premised its appeal on pulling the wool over people's eyes. So, you know, I have some faith that ultimately, uh, you know, the truth is going to triumph, but it is a, a really worrying setback. We'll leave it there for now. Suzanne Nossel is author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. She's also CEO of PEN America. Thanks, as always, Suzanne. Thank you. Thanks so much. A professor loses his job for speaking out. Our Jonathan Friedman has that interview. Until he was abruptly fired last week, Daniel Pollock Pelsner was a tenured professor of English and the Ronnie LaCroote Chair in Shakespeare Studies at Linfield University in Oregon. But he ran into trouble in recent months with university leaders when they were unwilling to take serious actions to respond to allegations of sexual misconduct against some of the university's board of trustees and made anti-Semitic comments toward him to defend their conduct. His termination is reverberating among professors across the country as it raises serious questions about appropriate protections for academic freedom, due process, and whistleblowing. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners who maybe haven't been following the whole story uh, out of Linfield, can you tell us why do you think you were dismissed? Well, when you got a big problem at your school, it's a lot easier to get rid of the guy who's talking about it than to fix the problem itself. And I guess I've been the whistleblower as the faculty trustee. I had a a duty to report issues of concern to the board. And for the last two years, I've been reporting that multiple members of the board have been accused of sexual misconduct by students and faculty. And the board uh, censored my report, told the trustees they couldn't talk about it, told me I couldn't talk about it either. And then eventually, I guess, instead of trying to solve the underlying problem, they just thought getting rid of me would solve the problem for them. It seems like an easy answer, but, uh, you know, it's kind of left you out in the cold uh, when really it sounds like what you were trying to do was fulfill your duty as faculty trustee. Well, that's exactly it, Jonathan. When my my colleagues came to me and reported what they had experienced at the hands of trustees, of course, uh, you know, as, as soon as they gave me the go ahead, I went right to the Title IX officer with their concerns. I went to the chair of the board and the president and our general counsel, as my colleagues asked me to do. And I thought it was going to be honestly a simple request to say, we need, just need some sexual harassment training for trustees. We need some better guidelines for proper behavior. So you know how it's different talking to a professor whose tenure file you're voting on from trying to pick up somebody at a bar. And we need some alternate formats for social events, because at Linfield, they were late at night off campus involving alcohol, and that led to uh, some pretty terrible things. And I guess I was I was naive to think that people in positions of power would say, thank you so much for pointing out our abuses. We'd like to correct them. Uh, and that's not what happened. No, certainly not what happened. And uh, it, it seems like you spent a long time trying to go through proper university channels before speaking out publicly. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it was all, uh, you know, just filing through the proper reporting channels, asking for independent investigations, asking the board to adopt an anti-retaliation policy against people who reported in good faith. Uh, and and at each stage, it was a, a rebuttal or a refusal to actually investigate the wrongdoers or a, a denial of the actual findings that were made. And, and it 
but I still didn't speak publicly, Jonathan. I didn't think that was my role to do until I learned that, in fact, what the board thought the real solution to this problem of sexual misconduct was just to get rid of the faculty trustee position altogether. And then it seemed like there wasn't going to be any line of communication to preserve after all, and somebody else had to intervene. So you really reached your breaking point. Yeah, it was this March when I learned they were getting rid of that trustee position. I thought, if I continue to be quiet about this, then then in a way I could become complicit in their abuses of power. And I promised my colleagues and students that I would speak up about it. And I thought that was my obligation to do. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you had much choice, like that they didn't give you much choice. Um, now, in your initial Twitter thread where you laid out the allegations against uh, the trustees and the president of the university, you know, including anti-Semitic comments and the allegations of sexual misconduct, you actually said you were concerned about Linfield retaliating against your colleagues and students because you thought that they were in a more precarious position than you. Would it be safe to say that your dismissal was a complete surprise? God, I've been I've been so naive at every stage of this process. I mean, I that, you know another reason that I spoke up is I I thought I had about as much privilege and protection as anybody could. I, you know, I'm a tenured professor. I was, I guess, my my daughter would say, you were a tenured professor with an endowed chair. I'm a you know I'm a I'm a straight cis white guy who's who's uh, used to being <laughs> believed in rooms that I come to because of a you know whole history of privileges that support people like me. And I thought I could use that voice to speak up. And um, I'd, I'd been warned that, you know, people often retaliate against whistleblowers, but I, I guess I didn't believe it until I was on a, a Zoom call doing a work interview and all of a sudden my Zoom froze and my computer shut down and said I was disabled from accessing it and my email shut down. And when I tried emailing myself, I got a bounce back saying I was no longer an employee of Linfield University. Highly unusual, uh, what you're describing, certainly for tenured professors to be dismissed without, I mean, it, it's unusual for anyone to be dismissed in that way, let alone uh, in a role where there are supposed to be standards and procedures. How is it that the university has justified your dismissal this way? Uh, <laughs> as far as I, I can tell, they haven't. They've just said that they didn't feel like they had to follow the handbook that's specified in Linfield employee policies as binding on the institution. And the, the only grounds that the handbook gives for firing a tenured professor for cause is if it's related to uh, concerns about teaching or about professional work. And Linfield has said publicly that they had no concerns about my teaching or professional work. They just had concerns about me speaking up about problems. And, and I thought that was what academic freedom was supposed to protect. Absolutely. Speaking up about things that it seems like those in power there didn't want brought to light. Yeah, you know, there, there have been allegations of sexual misconduct by members of the Linfield board for years now. And it turns out that even when the first ones came to light, the school just covered them up, kept the offending, you know, the guy, the trustee who was accused of offenses on the board and uh, seemed to just have hoped nobody would find out about it. So why do you think that what's happened to you now is so concerning for professors around the country as a matter of academic freedom and, and a threat to tenure? Well, you know, the message it sends, even if, even if you don't know anything about me or, or what I've been speaking up about, you, 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 I think you have to hope that when you are tenured, that allows you to express informed views that other people might disagree with but that they can't retaliate against you professionally. You wouldn't basically, you don't have to put your job on the line to speak your convictions if they're, you know, informed and thought through and supported by evidence. And what Linfield said is tenure doesn't matter. Academic freedom doesn't matter. 
if you are criticizing the president and the board, we can get rid of you. It's a terrifying prospect. I mean, very concerning because the traditions of academic freedom do protect professors to be able to say those kinds of criticisms. I mean, this is what's supposed to be uh, special about universities, special about academic freedom, special about, you know, open inquiry and, and what makes, you know, the university such a vital social institution in a democracy. You'd think, I mean, that's, that's certainly what we, what we teach our students. And that's the environment that my colleagues and I have always tried to create is one in which which people can speak up and they might not agree with each other, but they'll think about what the basis for opinions are and they'll respect each other's right to share that. Um, but what the, uh, the university told the, the press at least is that I had been insubordinate and I, I, I do have a duty of obedience, but my duty of obedience is to, uh, to the law and to establish Linfield policy. It's not a duty of obedience to, any one individual who claims that they can control the direction of Linfield. And uh, I, I think that's a real misunderstanding by the powers that be at Linfield about what our responsibility as professors really is. Yeah, misunderstanding indeed. And, and I understand, you know, beyond that attitude towards you about insubordination, that in the wake of your dismissal, there's been somewhat of a crackdown at the university on students and faculty speaking out and supporting you. Is that right? Oh my God! It's like out, like like there's some authoritarian playbook that's now replaced the faculty handbook. So, my my poor students, I, I I'm fired summarily about three hours before they're supposed to submit their final projects for my classes, and they when they try to do so, they just get a bounce back saying that I no longer exist at the university. So students are distraught, and they like they know better than anybody the problems with sexual harassment at Linfield. Recent campus survey, more than 400 students said how many of them had experienced sexual misconduct, how many of them didn't feel safe reporting. So when I'm fired, students get out their chalk and they go to the campus plaza, and you can see the pictures online, writing messages of support and messages asking for accountability. And then Linfield sends out its security officer to hose down the messages and announces that any student who writes messages without pre-authorization will be fined for unauthorized use of chalk. So then, you know, you can't keep students down. So students then go to make posters to put up in the residence halls expressing their views. And the residence hall advisors are told that they are not allowed to provide paper to students who want to express their opinions. So then, you know, residence hall advisors, many of them are reliant on, on the you know, financial support of those positions to be able to stay in school. So faculty take up the call. Faculty put posters in their offices on commencement day saying that they stand with me and the students. And Linfield campus security breaks into the faculty offices, tears down the posters and starts confiscating other papers they find as what they call evidence. And that is, I mean, from the outside, it seems almost farcical. But when you're living in that kind of crackdown, it is a terrifying prospect. I mean, it sounds really chilling to think that there'd be security going into locked offices, taking uh, what arguably are, you know, personal materials out of them for faculty. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of what you're describing with chalk and the RAs, it, it does seem farcical. I don't have a better word for it. Right. And these are not, these are not you know, vulgar, obscene messages. These are like, we would like accountability. We stand with DPP. We support our students. I mean, these seem like the most both heartening and, and uh, acceptable forms of free expression that are being silenced by an administration that, that I can only think must just be 
terrified that it's abuses of power coming to light and then grasping at anything they can do to keep on silencing folks. And so that I, 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 I you, you had said, I was sort of hung out to dry earlier, which I, I do feel, but the heartening thing has been how many other people, how many students and alumni and colleagues around the world have said that they are not going to be cowed into silence by an abusive regime at Linfield, but they are going to speak up and make sure that this isn't forgotten. It is heartening to see that. I know there's been a petition circulating for your reinstatement that has about 2,000 or more signatories from professors uh, around the country and around the world. I saw alumni took out a full page ad in the uh, local newspaper, The Oregonian, this week. And that there's also been a uh, website started, SaveOurLinfield.com, and a GoFundMe campaign. I mean, what else can people do if they, you know, hear the story and they want to offer support? You know, that SaveOurLinfield.com, it's a beautiful site that students and alumni created together. And uh, I would encourage folks who would like to learn more to visit. There's a tab with all of the news coverage and then a series of petitions you could sign if you're a faculty member, if you're an alum, if you're just a concerned supporter. And there's a there's a fund to support um I hope, I hope not just me, but any faculty or student who's a survivor of sexual abuse or who needs legal help. Um, and, and, uh, so there's a way to donate if, if you'd like to support those students and colleagues who, who are, are really in the, in, in the most vulnerable position and have just received a horrible message from Linfield that if you speak up about sexual misconduct, that you're going to lose your voice. And that's the worst message of all to be sending. And so I'm really glad that the students and alumni are sending the opposite message back. They're not going to be silenced. They're going to continue to speak up. Theater critic, Shakespeare expert, and now former professor of English, Daniel Pollock Pelsner. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story. Hey, thanks for shedding a light on these abuses. I, I appreciate your work. Of course. And that's our episode for Friday, May 7th. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon.